0: Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility, to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and the humanities, because life happens at the intersections. Good morning, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandi Skilache, the editor, and today I have with me Jaypreet Verdi, who is a historian of medicine technology and disability, to talk about her first book, Hearing Happiness, Deafness Cures in History, which came out this past May from the University of Chicago Press. It's so nice to have you on with us today.
1: Thank you for having me here today.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about your background? I've known you for a number of years, and I've always been fascinated by your research. So maybe you could say a bit about that to our listeners.
1: Sure. Well, I received my MA and my PhD from the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto, and then I held a postdoctoral um, position at Brock University before studying my current position as assistant professor at the University of Delaware. I've always been kind of fascinated by the development of medical technologies that I would used for diagnosing. So one of my first articles was about the invention of a diagnostic instrument for um testing hearing, but it was never actually invented. It was just created. And I talk a lot about what that means when we're trying to diagnose hearing. So I think from there, I became more interested in looking at the opposite angle. So how were, for instance, deaf people responding to these attempts to diagnose their um, variety, type, the various types of hearing losses or um, how are they reacting to the kind of treatment that were imposed upon them, not just by medical practitioners or by specialists or even by, you know, the industry, like the hearing aid industry or the broader culture, but also how their family members and loved ones were kind of pushing treatment on them. And that was kind of the heart of Hearing Happiness, trying to look at both the top-down history of medical development and understanding where quackery fits in the history of medicine, but also looking at the ways in which people responded to these kinds of cures, how they chose upon various options that were advertised or offered to them by specialists, how they made the decision to write for a patent medicine cure or how they chose among different kinds of hearing aids. So it was really important for me to, I think, uncover this kind of history because we don't really see this history existing right now, um, at least not in a very um, nuanced, depth way in existing scholarship.
0: I agree. And I think it's very interesting, too, because one of the things we talk about some at Medical Humanities and have spoken about is the sense that we hear about communities instead of from them. And that's very, very frequent. And that's also true in the context of global health as well, where you're always hearing about a culture, you're not hearing from them. And I think it's interesting that this is true right here in in the United States and in the United Kingdom and other places about everything from um, various disabilities. You hear about the doctors. You don't always hear back from patients about how do they feel about these technologies. Um, Is that what influenced the title, Hearing Happiness? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, the title was actually kind of a spur of the mermaid brainstorm. My press didn't like my original title, which I cannot remember. I think it was just called Definite Cures in History. And they felt like it wasn't, you know, wow. (laughs) And, And to be honest, I didn't either. It didn't really emphasize what I think with the core message of the book. But I was in the um, archive and I was looking at a collection of hearing aid advertisements. And there was one little tag connected to a hearing aid. And um, it said, your key to hearing happiness. And I thought that was just brilliant. Like, what did this even mean? You know, there was nothing else in that little piece of card. Just your key to hearing happiness. And it's connected to the hearing aid. It's like, this is the solution right then and there. Everything you're looking for, you're gonna find it in this piece of technology. So I think right then and there, I just it just clicked, and I felt like the title had many different layers about what happiness means, what hearing means. They can be interpreted in different ways, and of course, there's that um, alliteration right there as well. Right? No, it's lovely. I I think too
0: the concept that any technology is the key to happiness. You know, it's that silver bullet. Idea that this will this will solve problems, which of course imagines that there is a problem first. Yeah. So, um, so that's an interesting uh, avenue in your book as well about how people feel about this concept. Um, how did you put it? Uh, having cures forced upon them.
1: Um, well one of the things that I talked about when was well, specifically in relation to technology is that there is this pre assumption when a technology is introduced and promoted as a cure or even as a hope for the deaf as was very common in the twentieth century, there is that assumption that it's going to fix all the problems buying a hearing it will help you get a job, will help you find a partner and get married, you know, or help you feel more um, equal in society. It would alleviate the stigma that leveled against you. But what I learned through my research is that, as with any new technology that's introduced for the first time, there are a lot of complications with it. And we don't really see these complications when we just look at the promotional advertising or other material from the actual company. But when we look at it from the user's point of view, you know, they will complain about a hearing aid that becomes staticky, that doesn't always provide clear, um, a clarity of sound, or that they had to struggle and adjust in order to fit their body to these hearing aid. So basically, they had to learn how to use this in order to have it work for them. Now, what I found fascinating was that in the earlier 20th century, this was something that hearing aid companies were were very well aware of. They knew there were major technological problems with their devices, and they're constantly improving on the engineering and design um, features of them, but they also offered these electric therapy products on the side as well. So if you purchase a hearing aid from this company and then you realize it didn't work for you, then the hearing aid company would offer an alternative, this kind of quackery vibration um, gizmo, I guess, where you try to fix your hearing yourself. stuff. And I thought that was so fascinating. Like, why are hearing aid companies doing this? Aren't they hearing it? the solution? But it's like, no, they know it's not there yet. Like, it's a prosthetic. It's not right there as a the cure. Mm. And what they really want to do was offer the cure. And they did that until the, um, the Food and Drug Administration changed the law about electrotherapy products. That's fascinating. And I think
0: so interesting about the, why were they not Contacting people in the community to say what would help you. You know, it always seems to be a very top-down. What we think the solution will be.
1: Well, uh, um, well, first thing of course is to include the opinion, the expertise, and the the uh, background of the disabled in making the technologies. And mind you, hearing aid company did recruit some deaf people in like to consult with their devices when they were making them. And there were also people who were working for hearing aid companies who were uh, deaf or hard of hearing themselves. So there was a level of expertise. But one thing about deafness is that it's essentially a spectrum. If you're only making a technology that's going to fit for you know, people who might be classified as partially deaf or moderately deaf, but you don't really touch the more severe types of hearing loss because there's the assumption that people in that group are deaf with the capital D and only need sign language, then essentially you're limiting the range of the benefits of these technologies as you want to promote them. So including the expertise, the experiences of deaf people, I think, will really improve the technology. I mean, we talk about this a lot. Even now, you know, when, for example, Twitter decided to lay out their voice tweets, and it was revealed that they didn't really consult people in the disability community in making this. I mean, we could have all told you right off the bat, this is not really accessible. (laughs) Um, And then with, like, multiple ways, it's not even, like, the fact that these tweets were um, not capturing, but also the flashing light that they had were a trigger for people with epilepsy and other kinds of neurological disorders. So that was completely left out in the assessment. So having uh, disabled people working with engineering and technology right from the beginning, in other words, designing with disability in mind right from the get-go, not as an afterthought, would also really solve a lot of these problems with technological accessibility or inaccessibility. Mm -hmm. I like that idea
0: of bringing it into the design itself, the Mm -hmm. design phase. I had a chat with Chris Higgins earlier uh, this month Mm -hmm. and another with um, Alice Wong and we talked and a couple other folks too, um, including Cheryl Green. These were people that have said this all along that the problem is Mm -hmm. so much of the time the technology is developed and then tested, on the Mm -hmm. disabled community rather than having the disabled community be part of how you design. Uh, And, you know, so much of this goes back to the lack of accessibility and even a lack of understanding and need for accessibility. Um, For instance, we'll be providing a transcript of this podcast. We provide transcripts for all our podcasts now. Mm -hmm. We just started doing that this year. Um, and that's simply, it was just one of those things that it had to be brought to my attention. And immediately I thought, oh my goodness, why haven't we done that? You know, because so much of the time, um, the automatic captures are not terribly good. You know, it's, it's much better to have a human being actually transcribing. Um, and the same thing now, Twitter allows you to put alt text into, uh, pictures that you upload, but most of us don't know how to do that well. So it it just shows this
1: absence of understanding. Yeah, I think it's also the idea that, well, how many people are really going to benefit from this, right? So it's like if you're going to put all text in your images, the assumption is that, well, there's only going to be, like, you believe that there's only a few people who might benefit from it, so you're not going to do it. But that's not the point. The point is, like, it's there. It takes 30 seconds to just come up with some kind of description and if you're going to put that effort in editing your photo, changing the filter to post it on Twitter, then why can't you take that extra 30 seconds to just post an alt text description and make your tweet or post or whatever it is more accessible to people? I mean, one of the or you may not always make again people who refuse to provide any kind of accommodation, whether it's captioning or alt text or a transcript, is don't you want people to know what you're doing? <laughs> I mean, isn't that the point? <laughs> you're making a podcast or you're making a little video. Don't you want to maximize your audience as much as possible? And then why are you limiting yourself here? And I think that's what people often forget. It's like the audience is very, very varied. And then we also have to account for the fact they might be people who are disabled, but don't necessarily want to reveal that. And when they see accessibility features for them, you know, it is more accessible. It is, it provides them a sense of security and comfort in the communication that they might not have been aware of before. So I think that's really important that we acknowledge that fact as well, that accessibility isn't always for disabled people. It's really for everyone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually, I appreciate transcripts myself. I, um, I'm actually not the most auditory learner, personally. Mm-hmm. And I almost always, if I'm capturing something, I have to have it so that I can reference it later. And so, and I'm not somebody who has a disability in, in that sense, but at the same time, everyone can benefit. So there's multiple ways into this information. That's a universal benefit for everyone. Um, And I wanted to ask you a quick question because I know we talked about it earlier. I am someone running a podcast. There's lots of people running podcasts, and we often don't know how to find proper technologies or apps or or means of making things more accessible. I happen to be very lucky in that mm-hmm. I, I have a transcriptionist that I use, but in terms of captioning services, where should people look for these kinds of technologies? What's available?
1: Um, I think that's a very difficult question because one of the things you don't want to do, and I don't want to advocate it either, because I think it's unfair work in that you can ask disabled people what they're using Mm -hmm. but but you know it does require free labor for the most part I mean I spent almost my entire summer consulting from many different organizations and departments and individuals where to find appropriate captioning apps and how to use it and I was also testing a lot of these apps and that was many many man hours on my part Mm. yeah (laughs) but I thought from as an academic, I thought it was really important because I was preparing for a possible fall semester in which the majority of professors, teachers, educators will be teaching online. And I just wanted to show, look, here is a captioning app that's easy to use. You don't have any excuse not to use that. But that made, I um, things complicated on my end because in terms of, like, in addition to juggling my own work schedule, I'm doing all this extra work. But the truth of the matter is, all I was really doing was researching. I was putting in the hours to research and dig up all this information about the new technology, the new apps that were being introduced. And I think if you really are committed to providing accessibility for your audience, then do the research, like do the work, don't always depend on disabled people to kind of do the legwork, because quite frankly, we're always doing the legwork anyway. Yes, that's
0: true. And I think another point to be made here is, you know, I'm hopeful that books like yours, podcasts, um, other outreach might reach the ears of the companies. I've written to some of, you know, you could write to the companies as well. Why aren't there easily usable Act, you know, apps on the applications that we're already using. Um, there's a number of, of application services podcasts, and so far I haven't come across any podcast um, protocols that automatically have captioning services. And it makes me wonder, why is that? You know, for, for why would they assume that a podcast, I think it's your example earlier, they just think, oh, that they're not in the audience. So doesn't matter when in fact it, it does matter and it ought to be something that's designed when the applications themselves are being built.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a cultural thing here. I mean, there's this idea that we design a piece of technology and then we deal with accessibility after. Mm. Like, it's, Accessibility is always a, an afterthought and that's exactly the problem here. And that's what a lot of disability activists and design activists are forcing I mean, my colleague, Sarah Hendren, had the wonderful book out um, last week as well. What Can a Body Do? Oh, we interviewed and, her. <laughs> well,
0: She's yeah, great. It's yeah. You
1: know? And I think uh, Sarah is some is someone who's constantly pushing the design discourse as well. And Liz Jackson is another person um, who has been arguing that designers really need to work with disabled people to think about how to put accessibility at the beginning of every single design process rather than after, or as you mentioned, rather than testing on disabled people. So including the expertise more and more, like making it an ordinary part of technological development or practice, you know, as in the case of podcasts, I think would really set a new pattern, a new cultural shift going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I want to just return to something you said a minute ago about free labor and how mm-hmm. often um, people like myself, I mean, I you just don't even think about the fact that you're asking for free labor. And my question is, when they When we do want to bring disabled people into the design phase of these technologies, they're often being brought in as free labor at that stage too, aren't they? It seems like the shift needs to be even bigger and broader because even at the stages when they're asking people to be involved, are they paying them meaningfully? Are they actually asking them to be part of it in a way that treats them like equal producers of the technology? Or is it another one of those situations where Cultural blindness makes you ask somebody to do the legwork for you without you really realizing that that's what's happened.
1: Well, if you have if you're a big company, then I think the obligation for you to have a dedicated. Um, a dedicated team devoted to accessibility and that team needs to be made up of disabled people. I mean, I mentioned a few minutes ago about Twitter's voice tweets. Well, it was also revealed that Twitter did have an accessibility team, but they're mostly volunteers. But why mm-hmm. are they volunteers in the first place? Why aren't they, you know, this is a huge company. You should be paying for an accessibility team to be devoted to this work. But again, it's a, like you said, it's a kind of like... um problem here in that we don't recognize disabled people's expertise as being necessary or even crucial to the use and production of technology. And until that changed, I think we're constantly going to see this kind of tension and pushbacks.
0: Yes. Well, and I think um, errors of social justice as well, where you're taking advantage of people. Um, we see this in academics all the time, where you see people who are uh, high up and tenured and secure taking advantage of the labor of graduate students or adjuncts and things like that. Um, but it happens all across all across the board where you accidentally frequently take advantage of people's labor and and you know it, oh, it'll be a good experience for you you know or don't you want to do this for the betterment of mankind um, and, and that's simply what yes, we often do want to better mankind but that is not, an appropriate way to address that. You would not ask for an engineer's expertise by asking them, could you provide this free labor for me, please?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, again, one of the reasons why I spend my summer testing out captioning apps is that, you know, I I have the expertise in this, but I also had a kind of stable job and I didn't really have to worry about any kind of financial issues where well, I know other people might not have that. So yes, it was free, free labor on my part, but I, it was not something that I was going to be committed to doing forever because that, that, that's not fair for me either. Mm-hmm. And I, I think,
0: you know, if there's one thing I want to sort of drive home to our listeners is just how often we don't see that labor yeah. all the time you know, with, with issues of accessibility. I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm being taught by other people to see it, but, um, I wouldn't, see it on my own and i i so value books like yours and also sarah's um but also just your perspectives and i'm so glad that you can be part of this podcast and uh and sharing with our listeners is there anything you'd like to end with um and again the book is hearing happiness deafness cures in history it came out with university of chicago press um is there anything else you'd like to share or end the podcast with for our listeners today
1: um, no, I, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I think it's really important for us to constantly be aware of where our social justice fits in in the broader work we're doing. Um, and thinking about everything with accessibility in mind can actually be quite a radical movement. But um, that, I think that's it. I, that's all I have to add. And thank you, Brandy, for having me on the show today.
0: Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. And again, I hope all of you will check out her book and you can uh, check out the blog, which will have a link both to this podcast and to this transcript available. And once more, thank you all for being part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as MedHums underscore BMJ.